Jenny Lee and welcome to another episode of Radio New Bloom. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Kun Blau, Kun Bu Lao, from the Formosan Association for Public Affairs, FAPA, Taiwan Ren Gonggong Su Hui. Nicknamed Taiwan Gyasai, Taiwanese son-in-law, Kun has been part of Taiwan's democracy and independence movement ever since he joined FAPA in 1989, and he was once blacklisted by the KMT for his participation. Now, three decades later, Kuhn is still working at FAPA, and one may find his name on a wall in Taiwan's Qingmei National Human Rights Museum in New Taipei City, dedicated to foreigners who were once involved in Taiwan's democratization. Hi, Kuhn. How are you doing? Very good, Jenny. Great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you too. So I've wanted to interview you for a while now. When I was an intern at the Formosan Association for Public Affairs, FAPA, I was very inspired by how many people were quietly advocating for Taiwan abroad, yet few in Taiwan seemed to know about it at all. And having been with FAPA for over three decades now, you're certainly someone who's witnessed the development of and took part in the Taiwan independence movement. So it really is a privilege for us to share your story today. My first question is this. Did you know much about Taiwan before joining FAPA? Yeah, first, uh, thanks for having me over, uh, Jenny. And the privilege is completely mine, of course, To uh, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so you ask, did you know much about Taiwan before joining FAPA? As a matter of fact, I did. I studied uh, international law at the University of Amsterdam in the mid-90s in Holland. Uh, took five years, was a five-year curricu- curriculum, and I needed to find a subject for my graduation thesis. Wanted to write it about Japan, for I'd always been, and still am, a big fan of Japan. Had been there many times, collect Japanese art, love Japanese food. But all my fellow students also were crazy about Japan. So I thought I need to do something else. So what I did is I decided to, uh, you know, write my thesis about Taiwan. Because just a few years earlier, my country, Holland, had sold submarines to Taiwan. It's not very well known, I think, in Taiwan that that happened. It was 1981, 1983. And China broke off diplomatic relations with Holland as a result to show to the rest of the world what would happen if one became too close and too friendly to Taiwan. So I wrote my thesis about this submarine deal. I passed, I uh, graduated, and Garrett van der Wees, the chairman of the Dutch-Taiwanese Friendship Society, he heard about my thesis, contacted my, uh, my school, my university, and asked me to research Taiwan's legal status. So I wrote a booklet about this, which was published by the University of Amsterdam Press, concluding that only the people of Taiwan have the right to determine Taiwan's future. And several weeks before that, Chen Nanrong, who many of us might remember, set himself on fire in his Taipei office as a protest against the Kuomintang. And I wrote an article about this episode and weaving in my research about Taiwan's status. And it was published by a Dutch newspaper. And so I definitely knew more about Taiwan than the average Dutch citizen knew and knows. Even though Taiwan was a Dutch colony from 1624 until 1662, and 
Dutch people all know about Dutch colonization of Indonesia. They know of New York, that it used to be called New Amsterdam. But not many people know that Taiwan was a uh, colony for 38 years. And had also, as last issue, that why I know Taiwan, where, where I knew Taiwan at the time, is that I visited Shinsu with my family in 1985. My uncle worked for Philips Electronics at the time. It's a famous Dutch electronics company and light bulbs and television monitors. And my parents and six of us kids out of 11, we're with 11 kids, stayed in the Shinzu Science Park for three weeks. Wow, that's fascinating. And a lot of siblings. I have two younger brothers and I honestly can't imagine having more than 10 brothers and sisters. Anyway, I believe you joined FAPA shortly after that. Could you introduce FAPA to us? How did you get involved in the first place? FAPA, as, as you already pointed out, the Formosan Association for Public Affairs. We're a Taiwanese-American grassroots organization that promotes freedom, human rights, and Taiwanese independence through self-determination for the people of Taiwan. We have uh, about 50 chapters, all the way stretching from Seattle, Washington, to Miami, Florida, and from San Diego, California, to Boston, Massachusetts, and everywhere in between. And so we are a, uh, a grassroots organization, as I said, meaning that we have about 3,000 families all over the United States who are, in a way, 3,000 staffers. We're an army of ants who all talk to their elected representatives to help Taiwan become a more normal country and to help Taiwan ultimately gain full independence. And so how did you get involved? How did I get involved? After I had written my thesis about the Dutch submarines, as I just mentioned, Dutch, the Dutch submarines for Taiwan, I found in the summer of 1989 that a conference, conference was being held at the University of Maryland, and it was called Taiwan's Role in the 21st Century. I happened to be in the United States, in Connecticut, for holidays at the time, in August 1989, and decided to take the train down to D.C. for a few days to attend the conference. And there I met the FAPA leadership. They were all there. They had all come from all over the United States to join that conference. It was kind of a reunion. And they were looking for someone to run their D.C. office. I applied for the job. I remember very well, I had to write a little excerpt about Taiwan's legal status, which I uh, had just written the booklet about at the University of Amsterdam. I put it all, squeezed it onto one page and uh, applied for the job, was offered the job, took it, thought I would do that for a year or two, and I'm still here 32 years later. Speaking of the FAPA leadership, Many of FAPA's founding members are early and central figures in the Taiwan independence movement. Do you have any fond memories of your interaction with the FAPA leadership at the time? Oh, absolutely. These uh, central figures, as you say, in the Taiwan independence movement, to me, were just regular pals and fellow soldiers for Taiwan independence in those early good days, with whom I, for instance, would share a hotel room 
just to save $20 on lodging expenses. I won't name any names, but I saw many of them in their pajamas or who would cook dinner for me at the FAPA lodging house, the FAPA, the FAPA house in uh, Eastern Market in Washington, D.C., and they would go take a nap while cooking. And, you know, I would notice that the whole house would be smoke-filled because one of them had left the stove on. And, yeah, it sounds like a cliche, but these were more innocent times in the good old early days. Could you give us an example of a FAPA campaign that had a direct influence on U.S. policy toward Taiwan? I always say that the U.S. Congress holds the key to Taiwan's full independence. The U.S. Congress holds the key to Taiwan's full independence, to Taiwan becoming a, quote unquote, normal country. And some of my scholar friends say that the future of Taiwan will be determined on Capitol Hill. Think about that. So... The role of Washington, D.C., the role of Capitol Hill is critical for Taiwan's future. So we take pride at FAPA in bringing issues forward to and in Congress that will help Taiwan become a more normal country. And preferably issues where we do not find China on our path. For instance, if you're a Taiwanese-American and you have birthplace Taiwan listed in your American passport, you have FAPA to thank for, because prior to 1994, Taiwanese Americans had to list birthplace China in their American passports. So we at FAPA made that happen, that change, through legislation. And FAPA leaders at the time told me that they'd rather not carry an American passport than having a passport that said birthplace China. So that was very a very emotional victory for Taiwanese Americans, and the rules still apply 25, 27 years later. Second, we, did the, we started the campaign for the Taiwan Travel Act as early as 2004, where the Taiwan Travel Act is legislation, which was signed into law in March 2018, which allows high-level visitors from Taiwan to the United States and from the United States to Taiwan to freely travel without any restrictions. And I believe that it's arguably the most important piece of U.S. legislation since the Taiwan Relations Act. And so that was a FAPA initiative, and it took 14 years to become law. And one more is that in 2016, the House and the Senate passed legislation stating that the Taiwan Relations Act and the Six Assurances, which were promulgated by President Reagan, are the cornerstones of U.S.-Taiwan relations. We at FAPA have always believed that the three communiques, which harbor the vilified one-China policy in it, should be erased from the U.S. political consciousness. The three communiques are a disaster. They're terrible. We need to get rid of it. And so the good news is that the official U.S. policy today, after House and Senate legislation passed in 2016, the official U.S. policy is now that the Taiwan Relations Act, the six assurances, and the three communiques are the cornerstones of U.S.-Taiwan relations. So we added the six assurances to these cornerstones. And 
Of course, we're not completely happy because we still want to get rid of the three communiques. And that's what we're working on at the moment. And it looks kind of promising. So don't be surprised if at some point in the future, only the six assurances and the Taiwan Relations Act, which, by the way, are both American documents that both the TRA and the six assurances are the cornerstones of U.S.-Taiwan relations, and that the three communiques with the one China policy in it will be erased from the minds of the American political consciousness. So stay tuned. You once said that the fight for Taiwan's independence was a lonely battle 30 years ago. Could you talk about some of the obstacles to the Taiwanese independence movement in the United States in the past? What has changed over the years? Yeah, when I started at FAPA in 1989, I would find little slivers of support for Taiwan in both houses of Congress. It's an old joke now, but, but you know, there were indeed congressional offices who thought I came to talk to them about Thailand. And they would even say, what is a guy from Holland doing in Washington to promote Taiwan? So it was always a bit of a challenge to, to get them to listen to me. And at the time, the Taiwan Embassy, quote unquote, was called the CCNAA, the Coordination Council for North American Affairs. And they towed the KMT line, of course, because it was during the KMT days. And they would tell congressional offices how evil FAPA was, that we were only in it to promote independence. And the Chinese embassy in D.C. had the same views about FAPA. And so it was always a little bit odd that the bills that the CCNAA, the KMT office, promoted all referred to Taiwan as the Republic of China. And our bills referred to Taiwan, of course, as Taiwan. So that was a very tedious and embarrassing battle between congressional offices because congressional offices needed to pick sides in this respect. They needed to fill legislation with or ROC or Taiwan. And the good news is that we won that battle also because it's U.S. policy for the past decades, it has been US policy for the past decades to refer to Taiwan as Taiwan. So we really, you know, now you don't see Republic of China in any legislation uh, anymore. So that was uh, up until probably 2000, the year 2000. And on a personal note that the uh, CCNAA ambassador, Mr. Dingmo Shi, he refused to shake hands with me after I had introduced myself to him at the Think Tank event. He had me kicked out a little later of a farewell party for one of his CCNAA staffers, to which I was invited by the departing staffer. And somebody came to me and said, Mr. Ding wants you to leave. And so I was put in the December 1989 on the KMT blacklist for several years. And when a DPP delegation came from Taiwan to DC for the Bill Clinton inauguration, I had joined their group in 1992. I joined their group. And when we arrived at the CCNA office on Wisconsin Avenue in Washington, DC to attend an inauguration reception, 
I was not allowed to enter the CCNAA premises. And I was told that since I was on the KMT blacklist, I could not enter the CCNAA building, which was supposedly Taiwanese territory. And so I had to wait for several hours across the street in the McDonald's in my tuxedo. So I fought China. I fought the KMT on Capitol Hill. And I tried to find an audience on Capitol Hill that really did not care that much. Once they knew more about Taiwan, these congressional officers and its challenges, the challenges Taiwan faced and faces today, they would support the country. But it was a challenge indeed to bring that latent support to the surface. And then gradually, of course, support for Taiwan kept getting stronger and stronger to the extent that today every member of Congress is fully cognizant of Taiwan and the challenges it faces. That's why I always say I never met a member of Congress who does not support Taiwan. And the good news is that the complete membership of FAPA always stood by my actions, my initiatives, and wholeheartedly supported me, no matter how much pressure I received from all angles. So they were always on my side. With regard to political pressure, do you have any thoughts on the upcoming KMT-initiated referendum, especially the question on rectopamine pork imports? I know FAPA has been pushing for a U.S.-Taiwan bilateral trade agreement for many years. Yeah, so we at FAPA believe that the U.S.-Taiwan bilateral trade agreement is not just the key to Taiwan's economic survival, but to Taiwan's survival as a free and independent country. I don't think the people of Taiwan realize how critical such a U.S.-Taiwan free trade agreement is. So it therefore goes without saying that the whole rectopamine nonsense is a disaster in the making and nothing more than a political ploy coming from the KMT. Understand politics. I'm not naive in politics, but Taiwan's political parties can simply not afford to play politics that could lead to such disastrous consequences for Taiwan. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Kuhn. Taiwan simply cannot afford these political games. I think you'd call it which means internal trouble and outside aggression at the same time. On another note, there exists a tendency to talk about Taiwan like some bargaining chip between the US and China. And articles often describe hypothetical conflicts over Taiwan without even including Taiwanese perspectives. How can grassroots organizations like FAPA ensure that Taiwanese voices are heard and support for Taiwan is not simply framed as being anti-China? That's true, and it's hard to prevent. It's an issue that we point out, though, in every meeting we have entertained with congressional offices over the past decades. That's not an either-or issue, supporting Taiwan or China. That Taiwan wants to live next to China as friendly neighbors, and it wants to be left alone by China, and that China itself benefits from such an arrangement. We tell members of Congress that if it were not for the United States, Taiwan would be part of China today. That the U.S. has created this miracle, this pearl that Taiwan is today but that we want the U.S. to rub this pearl every once in a while. And it worked. We tell members of Congress that we at FAPA are not anti-China, that the Taiwan caucuses in the House and the Senate are not anti-China caucuses. 
So what FAPA does is to educate and engage with members of Congress again and again. And of course, it helps that China has not made itself popular the past decades, and especially the past four or five years or so. Today, Congress is less concerned about China's reaction. Therefore, we now see this tsunami of legislation and support pouring out for Taiwan recently. Polls have shown that more Taiwanese are identifying themselves as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. In the United States, Taiwanese Americans are also distinguishing themselves from Chinese Americans, as demonstrated by the Right in Taiwanese campaign. What kind of effects has this stronger sense of Taiwanese identity had on efforts in congressional advocacy, if any? Yeah, I would love to answer yes to this question, that the whole sentiment of the people of Taiwan of being Taiwanese and Taiwanese identity, that it has a huge impact, the American public and the American Congress. For I'm highly encouraged by this trend, the past decades of the people of Taiwan identifying more and more every day as Taiwanese instead of Chinese. Members of Congress tell me that they want to help Taiwan and its 23 million people in the face of increased bullying and harassment by China and its creeping annexation, Chinese creeping annexation of Taiwan. So I'm sure that these friends of Taiwan in Congress are privately encouraged by the notion that the people of Taiwan identify as Taiwanese instead of Chinese, but they hesitate to speak out in public about these views of theirs and on Taiwanese internal affairs like this. They rather leave in Taiwan's internal affairs alone. This is my last question for you, Kuhn. So many Taiwanese are hesitant to discuss politics because they believe it is either dangerous to be outspoken or that doing so makes things awkward. Do you have any advice for people who care about Taiwan's international status but are too scared to talk about it? Already in 1990, so that's 32 years ago, I wrote an article in the West Coast Taiwanese American newspaper, The Pacific Times, concluding that if my government in Holland would do to me what the Kuomintang government was doing to the people of Taiwan at the time, I would be so angry and I would do whatever I could to do something about it. I wouldn't be able to sleep. And certainly decades ago in Taiwan, there was a culture and a fear of getting into trouble if one would speak out about one's political views and feelings. But these times have passed. Those days are gone. And so in Washington, we always say, if you put two Jewish people in a room, you get three opinions. And I wish the Taiwanese people and Taiwanese Americans were more like that. We need to speak out, share our feelings and views with whoever is willing to listen, and even with the ones who are not willing to listen. I have more Taiwanese friends and Taiwanese American friends than Dutch friends. I love the people of Taiwan. I love Taiwanese Americans. They're fantastic and beautiful, kind, generous, sweet, caring. But I have one complaint, and that's that they're always pinsay. The time for Pinse is over, though. We cannot afford Pinse anymore. Indeed, but this definitely doesn't apply solely to the Taiwanese people. Recently, we're also seeing the United States and its allies being less Pinse about supporting Taiwan and its values. And as advocates pushing for Taiwan's integration into the international community, I think that's something many of us are happy to see. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and for everything that you've done for Taiwan. In this interview, you've briefly mentioned someone that many of us look up to, Nylon Cheng, who is often seen as a symbol of resilience in the face of oppression. 
And Nylon once famously said, the rest is up to you. And that's a phrase that was on my mind throughout the interview. Thank you so much, Kuhn. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure, my honor, and Benkeki. <laughs> Doshia. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Radio New Bloom. I would like to thank Kuhn for speaking with me. Special thanks to LTK Commune for permission to use their song, Good Night Taiwan. Stay tuned for more episodes of Radio New Bloom. 我们下一集见。